Welcome to Verso, a new arts and culture podcast from Phillips. I'm your host, Beth Lissick. On each show, we bring together two guests from different parts of the art world to have an informal, socially distanced conversation about what they're thinking about right now. Today, I'm speaking with David Norman, chairman of Phillips Americas, and Amanda Loyacono, head of evening sale for 20th Century and Contemporary Art, based in New York. I'm so glad you both could join us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You're both experts in 20th century and contemporary art, and I'd love to hear from each of you what your journey was to get to to where we are now. I studied art history, and then I went to Sotheby's in 1985 to be the temp of the assistant of the head of the Impressionist and Modern Art Division, and 31 short years later, that's the position I was holding when I left. And throughout that, had all the remarkable experiences of researching, cataloging, writing about the art, and then graduating up to developing and advising clients. I joined Phillips uh, with great excitement uh, in 2019 after spending a few years as an independent art advisor. I also studied art history, and after doing my MA in art history, I started at Christie's in London, where I was the the researcher for the post-war and contemporary art department. I then moved into the day sale, and obviously I'm not British, so I came back home. And it was at that point that I, I moved over to Phillips, and I've been at Phillips since 2016, and heading up the evening sale for New York uh, for the last couple of years. Great. And for the conversation that we're going to have today, how should we define a work as modern or post-war or contemporary, if there are gray areas, or is it something that is very specific? Um, how do you define it? Well, it, it is kind of a invention of the auction houses in terms of creating different categories of sales. But my own definition is modern are any artist who matured and were doing their work before World War II, before the New York School. I see it more as where the artist arose in their mature work versus just pure chronology. And what about you, Amanda? Do you have uh, any, any other insight you want to talk about that? Sure. I think when we, a lot of times when we talk about contemporary, it's really from a modern perspective. So it's almost everything that's beyond modern. And oftentimes the rather crude way of breaking that down is artists who were born before 1940 fall into post-war and everybody after that is contemporary. There are complexities in that kind of reading because as artists' careers have evolved, um, artists who you consider in one bucket or the other can look not in keeping with that bucket, as there are different readings, um, different retrospectives, different um, uh, art historical kind of discoveries about those artists that can also challenge where we where we place them. It's it's always a little bit fraught, but really when we think about post-war, I think it's really that moment in art history that gets ushered in after the war with abstract expressionism, with pop, with minimalism. And it's just that very fertile period immediately after the war that kind of creates that demarcation for us. Phillips was the first 
auction house to combine the 20th century and contemporary for a sale. Is that right? We have done this at Phillips because this is how collectors look at their collection. They don't look at it through these artificial constructs. Artists don't wake up one day and say, I'm a post-war artist. I'm a contemporary artist. They are not confined to period or genre when when they look at influences uh, or subversions of the art historical canon. And Beth, I'd add that over the years, both at Sotheby's and Christie's during my years there, there had been attempts to do this. At one point, Christie's divided um, their field into 19th century and 20th century art. And at one point when I was at Sotheby's, we tried to blend in Latin American art and modernist American art with the impressionist and modern field. But the right formula hadn't been hit. And it also wasn't the right time. It was both a exciting and radical idea in Phillips, and it was also the successful accomplishment of something that the other houses aspired to in the past. I think it's really something that was always there and perhaps just not fully engaged with. I mean, I think you're seeing it a lot in museums as well right now. You know, MoMA has done a complete rehang, which is not along chronological lines, but across influences and, and thematic pursuits. You look at, in Kerry James Marshall's retrospective at the Met Breuer, they dedicated a whole room where he was able to pick from the, the collection and put together um, artists and, and objects that um, inspired him. So I don't think that we have invented something that what didn't exist before. I just think we've tapped into a zeitgeist. And it existed more so in, uh, as Amanda was saying about MoMA, curatorial sense, you know, an art historical view. Other than monographic exhibitions, museums often did survey shows tracing abstraction, you know, or expressionism through the course of the 20th centuries. And uh, again, I think we did pick up on earlier uh, a greater sense of fluidity in a greater way. We'll speak about how the earlier and later artists work inform one's another. Do you want to talk about some of the artists who were influenced by their predecessors and, and some of the connections made there? Well, I'll, I'll kick it off with the fact that Picasso, really after Matisse died in 1954, Matisse was Picasso's both great rival and great friend. As a matter of fact, Picasso once said, if Matisse never lived, I'd be painting Matisse's. But after Matisse passes away, Picasso starts to get his, enter into his own dialogue with past masters. In 1955, he starts a series based on Eugène Delacroix's Women of Algiers, which dates to about the um, 1830s. Picasso then moves on to Goya, Manet, Poussin, and, and even most famously for his later works, Rembrandt and the Dutch masters. So I think he felt the only ones for him to have a dialogue with were artists, the greatest artists of previous eras. I mean, I think that, you know, when we talk about influences, I think it's about 
defining, are we talking about influence or pastiche? Because I think when you take an artist who is so iconic that they have made it into the art historical canon, and whether you know art or you don't know art, you know that work, you know, that's a very challenging space for an artist to interrogate. Picasso is doing that as the last frontier. There's no one to compete with who, who who's living. He's got to go back into the past. And I think that one of the post-war artists who really did that to the greatest extent was Andy Warhol. He really put himself within that lineage of great art historical masters. He did a series with De Chirico. And I think what's really interesting about De Chirico for him is that there's a real postmodern reading on De Chirico and Warhol that they really have an affinity with that kind of puts them on the same plane about going through your own back catalog of imagery and, um, you know, pastiching on yourself in a way. It's, it's fascinating to see how an artist retains that connection without losing themselves and that connection to the original. And that brings to mind the fact that even though the modern and the post-war are, are separated by, you know, years and generations, an artist like Magritte also looked at De Chirico, looked at the mystery of the object, unpopulated or sparsely populated spaces, the sort of disquieting calm. So I think in both of the fields we have focused on, there's almost a shared ancestor and certainly for surrealist artists, it, it was de Chirico, as well as it was, Amanda says, for many of the contemporary painters. Thinking about artists in terms of place, do one of you want to speak to that? Artists who've been working in the same place, but over in different time periods, and how you see that conversation? One uh, very clear example would be in Vienna, and Egon Schiele working there, at an early time when it was really a sort of locus and a center of activity. Klimt was there, there was the secessionist movement, the Art Nouveau movement. So Vienna and Schiele's time was one of the centers of modernist innovations along with Paris and you know, Berlin came a little bit later. But I think what's interesting that you bring up about place is when an artist from the past becomes so inextricably part of the fabric of that place that the contemporary artists working today have almost no choice but to react in some way to that kind of legacy. You know, Sheila and Vienna become this kind of specter that you have to contend with if you are a contemporary artist or a figurative artist working in, in Vienna. And you see that a lot in the way Boafo handles the bodies of his figures and even in the, the painterly aspects of his figures. And I think you also see it a lot with Nicholas Party and Magritte. So Nicholas Party works in, in Brussels and he's picked up a lot of the, the kind of larger scale, hyper-sized, uncanny aspects of of objects and things and the thingliness of things that Magritte is so well known for. I like your use of the word thingliness. <laughs> when, I, when I think of Magritte, I guess the, the word that comes to mind is objecthood. Yeah. But it, it is the, the same, the taking of the common object, something we're all so familiar with, and transporting it into a completely different sphere. I didn't know that Sheila died of the Spanish flu. 
And I came across a Boafo video that he is in Vienna now and was doing a COVID um, kind of PSA about wearing a mask and washing your hands. And I thought that was such an interesting connection to them both being in Vienna and the pandemic in both of in both of their lives. Yeah, Sheila died very young, only about <laughs> 26 or so. And also with these two artists, there's a, a great visual analogy. I think both focused a great deal on the articulation of the face and hands as the most expressive parts of the body. Certainly with Sheila, there's large areas of unpainted surface. Uh, so there's a certain emphasis on that. And also a real uh, mixture and pooling of color. I mean, within Sheila, it's both sort of a sense of seductive and enticing, as well as a sort of uncomfortable sense of decay. And with regard to earlier examples, I'd cite Miro and the New York School of the Abstract Expressionist, because for the generation of uh, artists in New York, the earliest influence were the surrealist artists, the Europeans. So you'll see in the very earliest Pollocks and de Kooning's and even Rothko's and uh, Gorky, a, a surrealist inspired, if not direct imagery. Now, when Miro came to New York for the first time, because his gallerist Pierre Matisse invited him, uh, Miro was so struck by the energy and the scale uh, of Manhattan and the U.S. It really was a revelation to him. And he saw these great, large, energetic, um, expressive canvases of that New York School uh, artist. And it influenced him. He started creating even larger scale paintings with sort of colored large grounds, any figurative elements. And so there's like a really nice example of, uh, in a way, the teacher later being taught by the students. I think mm -hmm. the story or the example that I think is most often referenced in in 20th century art is the is the relationship between Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat and the, you know, the reinvigoration of Warhol's late practice due to his kind of friendship and to some degree mentorship of Basquiat early on in, in his career. You know, Warhol was an illustrator in the late 50s, started painting in the early 60s, by 65 had abandoned painting for, for film, returned to painting in the, in the mid 70s, but was doing a lot of uh, commissioned portraits at that time. And it was really in his friendship with Basquiat in the, in the early 80s that he really returned to painting and started interrogating not only his own body of work, but, you know, new, new genres, new, new subjects. And recently, we've seen a real interest in the collaboration pieces that Basquiat and Warhol did together. And I think that, you know, they've, al they've always kind of been of interest to, to collectors, but I think there's a real acknowledgement now that there is something art historically relevant and unique about these pieces. Shifting into your work right now in this present moment, David, you've been in this business for a long time. Have you ever experienced anything like what we're going through now, how that is for the art business? No, not, not at all. And I've been through multiple cycles, you know, 
the, my first one I experienced was the complete withdrawal of the Japanese bidders around 1990 and how much that one bidding group supported the market. And then, you know, maybe the more recent example was the meltdown of 2008 and things that really challenged the market and have an impact on supply and uh, attitude toward pricing. But in this instance, I'm blown away by the fact that literally everything changed overnight. We all thought that, you know, collectors needed to see these very large exhibition catalogs, that we needed to send paintings all over the world, that there needed to be great dinners and a thousand people packing exhibition openings. And all of a sudden, none of that could be accomplished. The clients all adapted. They all bid online. No one was complaining. They didn't have another cocktail party. And I'm sure no one was complaining. We weren't doing all those three cheek kisses to everybody who walked <laughs> in the doors. You know, nothing could be described as a silver lining, but it did allow the auction industry at least to just, as I said, overnight catapult itself into a, a whole new era of how one considers buying and selling art. It became a, you know, a, a very a different discussion about how to reach people if you can't reach them physically, how to get art in front of people if they can't see it physically, how to tell the story around the art in a way that was comprehensive and complete without kind of the traditional tools to, at, at your disposal. And we were particularly well positioned to make that transition because Philips was always very digitally forward. We were the first to develop the apps to bid live on the iPhone. Uh, me as an old guard, I thought, who's going to do that? And yet it was tremendously popular and extremely used by so many clients. So I feel like we were really poised to pursue that transition further, which was a great place to be in. So Amanda, in your personal life, what is your, where do your tastes run? What would you, what do you, or what would you have on your walls? My, my tastes are pretty diverse, but I do love, I do love the story behind things, the context behind things. I often find that it's hard for me to make a, a final decision about whether I really love a piece or not until I know the full history behind it and why it was made and, and, you know, what, what, the artist was trying to achieve. And, and at that point, I kind of fall in love with the object itself. Uh -huh. what about, David, are you the same way? Do you love knowing every story behind everything before you commit to it? I do in terms of my studies and my love of the artworks. But in terms of what I collect, I really approach it very visually and very viscerally. It's like falling in love. I see something and I just know it. Can you both talk about a time that you just completely fell in love with an artwork? It just made something that really made you swoon. I think one time that really resonates with me was kind of quite early on, but I saw the Richter retrospective at the Tate. And I remember walking into that first room and they had, I think, about five or six of the bombers all around you. And he wasn't an artist I really knew a whole lot about at the time, but they had that, that realist quality to them and that he's using photography or, or newspaper printings as his kind of 
base and then he moves them way beyond that in his painterly application and this kind of whole concept of what is truth what is truth in painting how can painting even convey truth why even bother painting if you have photography what is photography showing you that painting can and vice versa it was a moment that really kind of crystallized a lot of themes both that Richter pursues but themes that I often find that I'm drawn to in the art that I love really started a, a real lifelong love of, of Richter's work but really helped crystallize in my own understanding of what I love about art. Yeah and what about you David? Well I'd say there's maybe two or three but one that stands out was because it was also my first trip to the Barnes Foundation. And then I saw the great Matisse, Le Bonheur de Vivre. And it's beautiful and you can enjoy it immensely for that alone, but it's also confounding. And the pliability of space within the picture, scale, transitions, you can just really puzzle a great deal over it. And as a matter of fact, returning to Picasso again, it's upon seeing that, that Picasso felt so challenged. He went on to do one better and create the Demoiselle d'Avignon MoMA. But I think it was the Bonheur de Vivre because I really had to work a bit on it. The other one, which I think is very common, is going to the Prado and finally seeing uh, Velasquez Las Meninas after everyone studies it in school. I remember sitting on the floor until the guard shooed me away for maybe an hour looking. But that was pleasure and finally seeing the familiar. But I think the Matisse was the combination of the beauty and the challenge of it. Thank you. Thank you both so much. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks for tuning into Verso, an arts and culture podcast from Phillips. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye for now.